0: All right, find Colossians in your Bible, Colossians chapter one. Super excited um, to share uh, over the next probably a few months um, with you guys from the book of Colossians. And um, I'm really excited to uh, share a letter that was written to a young church with a young church. Um, it's kind of fun being in these stages. Everything feels new right now. I don't know if it feels that way for you guys, but every time we get together, it feels like something new is happening. You know, there's a new computer glitch that's not letting us use our programs or there's there's a new service or whatever. And, and this is really cool. I'm super excited that you guys are here because this is our first morning service. Um, as transformed ministries. And so we're super excited to be able to use this space fully, and we're super blessed. And, and as we go through the growing pains and the, the, um, the changes that come with a young church, some things can happen as we go down that road where um, we start to get caught up in logistics. I'm a logistical kind of guy. I think about details. I think about process. I think about the different things that need to be done. I'm I'm an organized person. And so I start getting really focused on logistics and what needs to happen. And well, this needs to be in place and this needs to flow in a certain way. And before I know it, I'm not really submitting myself to God and trusting him to lead this process. I'm trying to take it over and be the project manager that's telling God how this ministry is going to work. And let me just tell you this at the onset, that's bad news for all of you right? That's bad news if Mike's just making decisions and running with them. And that's why good leadership and accountability and those kind of things are in place. And we see this in early churches where a lot of these churches that Paul writes to are plants, they're new ministries. And so they not only have a local leadership, but they have someone looking out for them. They have Paul writing letters going, okay, need to adjust this here, need to do this here. And so the, the thought that came to my mind as I looked at this letter is calibration. Um, We all need calibration on a regular basis. And calibration is is defined this way. To standardize something such as a measuring instrument by determining the deviation from a standard so as to ascertain the proper correction factors. I didn't write that. Could you tell? Yeah, you're like, Mike doesn't write that way. Um, But that's the actual definition, right? determining the deviation from a standard so as to ascertain the proper correction factors. In other words, how far off from the true are you and how do we get you back there again? Deviation from the standard describes the human struggle quite nicely, don't you think? Deviation from the standard. You're off track. you're You're not on the straight and narrow anymore. And so whether intentionally... We can, get, we can do this to ourselves, transgression, or through the bumps and the potholes of life. We get out of alignment naturally. You know, it's like your car. There's, you know, there's train tracks. I used to, you know, obviously being at, at the church in Rathbun for so many years, I had to cross two sets of train tracks each direction. How many of you guys remember before they fixed those train tracks on 41, how bad they were? How many of you guys are driving to raft every time you hit them, you thought your car axle was just going to break off and boom. And so people are like trying to line it up better. You're putting one one wheel in the middle, trying to like split that extra lane. Some people swing over into the other one and come back hard, you know, and all this stuff. Well, the reason is because it's not good for your car to go through those things. And what you discover is when you're hitting large objects like train tracks that aren't even with your car at high speeds, you get out of alignment, right? You notice that you're driving down the street because, you know, none of us ever do this, but you can imagine someone who like reaches for their phone to check it real quick and you're driving with your knee and your your hands aren't on the wheel and your car goes, you know, just naturally starts turning. Well, you're out of alignment. And so what do you do? You live with it until you can't live with it anymore. And you take it into the mechanic eventually and they do what? They align the front of your car. Now, do they align it to whatever they feel straight is? Oh well, this seems this is straight to me. I mean this this is but but yeah dude, you're cutting hard left. That doesn't work, right? There's a standard that they set it to that sets it on a straight path calibration. It's adjusting according to a standard. And so the source of our calibration is often what's get what gets questioned in our culture. It gets questioned in our culture often what the standard actually is. How do we know what true is? How do we know what the true direction is and what the straight and narrow is? What's the standard? Where is the standard? Is there a standard? Hence the movement of there is no truth, right? There is no standard. This is my version of straight, you know, and you're like, that's ludicrous. You're in the gutter, you know, but, but here's the thing. If we're going to say that there is a standard, we need to know who it is. We need to know what it is, and we need to know that it's important enough for us to calibrate our lives to and as a church, we need to understand this. The Bible is clear who the standard is. If you open your Bible, you submit yourself to what it says. The Bible's clear about who the standard is and the God breathed word of Scripture never hesitates to take the position of the standard of saying this is what's true. This is what's right. Celebrate your life to this. So God's given us every reason in Scripture to believe that he is the standard that holiness is what he holy is who he is and that holiness is what he has called us to and how we become holy is through Jesus that's what scripture teaches that's just the gospel in a nutshell we're going to talk more about it later but god's given us every reason to build on his foundation of Christ Jesus Jesus yet oftentimes we need to be reminded we need to be reminded that we're getting too close to stepping off that rock We're stepping off that foundation. We need to be reminded when we're getting close to the edge. You ever like to freak your parents out when you were younger? Or if you're a kid now? You know, your parents like, don't get too close to that rock. And you get really close, you're like, oh, you know. And because your mom's like a little ways behind you, she can't tell. There's like three feet. She's like, "Ah," you know, and she freaks out at you and yells and throws things at you and knocks you off the cliff. Um, What's interesting is that oftentimes we like to pretend like when we get older that we don't do this that we don't push the limits of where we can get. You know, I used to describe it to the youth group all the time when I teach, and I would talk about how, you know, if you draw a line, the most natural thing for a teenager to do is see how close they can get to the line without actually touching it, right? I need to get right up to this thing and get my toes on the edge, right? We still do that as adults. We still have that tendency as adults, and what we do, what we actually are doing is we're pushing the boundaries of the rock, We're standing on the rock of Christ. We've given our lives to Jesus, but we're standing on this surface that's solid and a great foundation. And what sin is leading us, is tempting us to do, is to get as close to that edge as we possibly can. And and so what God wants us to do is to reset our footing. He wants us to reset our footing, get back on what's solid, get back to what's right, what's true, what the standard is. Because everything else is shifting sand outside of that rock. Anything else that you plant on is not going to hold you. It may look good, but it's not going to be good in the end. And so Colossians presents a clear picture of who Jesus is. Paul's writing to a young church, and he's going to get them back online again. And he says this, the clear picture of Jesus is thus, he is the sovereign Lord who created the universe, he's the head of the church, and he's the only way to experience forgiveness for our sin. That's what we're going to learn, Calibration. Get the things that need to be right, right. Set yourself on the right course. Why was it necessary to write? Why was this letter necessary? For a little bit of background, I I can't spend much time here. Paul sits imprisoned in Rome at this point. This is one of the prison letters. This is one of the letters he wrote while imprisoned, waiting for his trial. And so he took it upon himself, to write some letters, four of which we have in Scripture, Ephesians, Philippians, this book here of Colossians, and the book of, or the letter of Philemon, which they're all letters, but Philemon's to an individual on behalf of a man named Onesimus. But the other three are written to church groups. They're meant to be distributed amongst the churches in that area and read so that they could be instructed by them. And so in reference to the church in Colossae, there in prison, Paul had received word of some heretical teachings that were starting to rise up. There's something that, that scholars talk about, the, the Colossian heresy, and, and they, they really struggle trying to figure out, like, wh- what this group of people, like, who they belong to that were stirring these beliefs up, because they aren't really defined. There's some believe that there could be some kind of a um, Judaism a heresy that was rising up, requiring people to basically keep more laws, and some believe it could have been Gnostic teaching, which was really weird spiritualism, and, and we won't get into those subjects, because you don't have four hours this morning, but... Um, Paul had received word of these heretical teachings, and here's the point. They were cropping up. It wasn't epidemic level yet. We see that by this letter. But Paul believed that prevention was better than cure. He wanted to prevent this from getting any further. And what's interesting is that he's writing to a church that most wouldn't consider to be that significant in the city of Colossae. This letter, um, he's grasping at evil and holding it tight and finishing it off before it has chance to spread. Just... In that little side thought, think about how often we try to nip things in the bud, as it were. You know, cut it off before it grows. We should be that way with sin in our lives. When something small is starting to crop up and you recognize it, deal with it immediately. Because we all know this, sin grows. It grows, it gets bigger, it becomes a worse problem, it never stays in the same condition. And so... We have to deal with it before it spreads. That's what Paul's doing for the church in Colossae. And so the church here, it wasn't planted by Paul directly. Um, This wasn't a group of people that Paul had planted and trained up himself. He'd never even been there. And many would agree that Epaphras, um, who will be mentioned in this letter several times, was most likely the, the planting pastor of this church. If he wasn't, He certainly was the minister in charge of the area, not only to Colossae, but also to the two neighboring cities that were almost within view of Colossae, which is Laodicea and Hierapolis. And and Laodicea probably rings a bell because there's a letter that's written to the Laodiceans that's very well known to us um, in the book of Revelation. And so while there are plenty of Jews in the region, uh, the church in Colossae was most likely Gentile majority. Um, We'll see the indicators of this not only in his phraseology, but also um, in the list of sins that were dominating those in the church uh, prior to them coming to Christ. So prior to their their faith in Jesus, he kind of calls out the types of sins that they were in before before Jesus. And if you read those in chapter 3, verses 5 through 7, you'll see they're very characteristic of heathen Gentiles. Um, And the Jews would be struggling with other things. It's not that they didn't have their stuff, but these would be Gentile sins. And so Dominated, most likely, uh, this church was by a Gentile congregation. Um, The three cities mentioned prior, Laodicea, Hierapolis, and Colossae, what's interesting about them is Colossae is the least significant of all three. Um, Even to this day, you can find remains of Laodicea and of Hierapolis. You can find buildings or structures from this time period that are still standing. You cannot find a stone that belongs to Colossae. It's gone. Like this, the city is completely gone. They can only guess at the location. Uh, Laodicea was a political center of the district, a financial headquarters of the whole area. Um, they were pretty prosperous as a city. Hierapolis was a large trade center, and there was a notable spa that used to be there. And so, in Roman times, if you had a spa, think bathhouse, think a big part of the culture, think about the Greek lifestyle. It makes a lot of sense. Um, and to this day, you can Again, you can still find those structures there in those two cities. Um, Lightfoot said this about Colossae. I thought this was really interesting. He said that it was the most unimportant town to which Paul ever wrote a letter. It was the most unimportant town that you have a letter written to by Paul. What's interesting is you could, you could argue that there is more depth in theology in Colossians than in any of his other writings. Um, there is an extreme depth of theology in this letter, and yet he gave it to this tiny church in a city that we don't even know where they are. We don't even know where it was now. We got a region because we have history. We don't know the actual place of it. It's interesting to me how we look at significant cities and significant churches, and especially in our culture where bigger is better, um, where bigger is more powerful, and that's always been the case, but just that's something that we can understand as, as as we sit here this morning. Reading it as a church nearly 2,000 years later in a city that's really not that significant, like Coeur you're like, oh, Coeur d'Alene. I mean, like, you know, in Idaho, it's like, dude, you can't even get people to pronounce Coeur right. Like, have <laughs> you ever listened to, like, if it ever makes some kind of national news? It's like saying Gonzaga. Like, when people, on whenever they make the tournament, like, <laughs> it's like, no, not even close. Like, they can't pronounce it. it people don't really know about This city we are not a city of significance in by the world's big city standards And yet God has a special message to speak to us We are not a big church But God has has a special message to speak to us from his word because it's not based on size or power or rank We're gonna read this in a little bit as we look at the beginning of this God cares about souls God cares about people and so right here right now this message is for us And it's significant because God loves every single one of us. Amen? That's why we're here. And so, no one is insignificant to God. No body of believers is insignificant to him. And as a a young church receiving this letter in Colossae, I want us to receive this as as a young church. As a letter that's meant to encourage and strengthen and standard set us. To put us and calibrate us on the right path. That's my goal as we go through these studies forthcoming. So, are you ready? I tried to make quick work of the intro. All right, here we go. (laughs) Like, failed. All right, here we go. Colossians chapter 1. We're just going to read the first six verses this morning. Paul writes this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints in Christ at Colossae who are faithful brothers and sisters, grace to you and peace from God our Father, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, for we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. You've already heard about this hope and the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. It is bearing fruit and growing all over the world, just as it has among you since the day you heard it and came to truly appreciate God's grace. Let's pray over this text and then we'll dig in. Father, we just ask again for humble hearts, for open minds, and for a willingness, Lord, just to be fed by you. And, and Jesus, we recognize that you are, as we studied last week, the bread of life. And Lord, we don't we don't need to hunger anymore. We don't need to thirst anymore because we have you. And so, Lord, would you satisfy the things inside of our lives now through your word? God, this is the spiritual food that we need. And so would you strengthen us from your word, and would you encourage us in our walks? And God, I pray that we would just leave here with a ton of joy. I really ask, God, that we would be overjoyed because we belong to a God such as this. We couldn't imagine, Lord, and we cannot fathom how good you are. And so just pour out on us this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So as Paul begins his letter, it's it's very typical for Paul um, to... Explain his position and also to give a greeting that's similar to this um, You'll find if you if you do a study on the way that letters of Paul the early writings of Paul oftentimes he will write um speaking to a church that's less personal and if you look at the the further along in his life the letters that he wrote later on you'll see him get a little bit more intimate with people a little bit more personal with individuals and and you can look at that over time it's a fun study to do on your own Um, but he begins with saying Paul he says an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will you know and, and and I oftentimes I'd read texts and you'd sit through studies and sit through so many messages throughout your life and you're like how does a pastor make a sermon out of verse one of any of Paul's letters you know and as I was looking at this I'm like I I understand Like, I get it, because when you think about the way that we see ourselves, when you think about the way that we perceive ourselves, a lot of times we identify as what we have made ourselves into be. We identify as what we do, or we identify with the talents that we have, rather than looking at what we are and saying, what I am is by God's will. Who I am is according to God's will. And that's what Paul says. I'm an apostle, one who is sent of Christ Jesus by God's will. And he explained this to the Philippians, how much value he puts in human efforts. If you read Philippians chapter 3, and verse 3, says this, For we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort. We put no confidence in human effort. He goes on to say, if anyone has reason to be confident, it's me. He goes, I've, I was zealous. I was, you know, uh, this is a a big Jewish thing. I was circumcised on the eighth day, you know, like I, my lineage, my genealogy, all of these things, where I come from, who I was, what I did, I was a Pharisee. He says, no one's more qualified than I am. No one can look at human effort and, and say that they have put more human effort into being a godly person. He goes, and all of that is worthless. All of that is worthless compared to knowing Jesus. Because Paul finds no identity in what he has pushed himself to become or worked hard to become. He finds his identity in who Jesus says he is. Christians, we have to find our identity in who Jesus says we are. That's where we are home. That's where you're at rest. That's where you're at peace, is finding your identity in that. And with that as his qualification, then his apostleship or position as one who is sent. That means that God has put him in this place. It gives us no, so much confidence when we recognize that God has put us in the position that we're in, that we haven't put ourselves there. And and do you ever question sometimes, like, did I kind of get myself into this, this position? Is this me ordained or is this God ordained? It's a good question to ask. Hopefully we come to the same conclusion that Paul did. This is a God thing. God has called me to be this. That's how I know who I am and what I'm doing. We do things by the will of God. This is what Paul says is this was neither earned nor achieved. This is a calling from God. Church, may we never forget that we are not individually what we have made ourselves, but what God has made us. We are not what we make ourselves. We are what God has made us. Because anything that you make yourself to be will pass away. But who God has made you to be lasts forever. So be who he's made you to be. Never forget that. We're not individually what we have made ourselves, but what God has made us. And then he says, I've got someone here with me, and it's a character that we're familiar with. It's Timothy, right? And you and know Timothy. There's two letters written to him in scripture, and he's referenced in the book of Acts. We know where Paul met it with him um, and picked him up and carried him off with him on his second missionary journey. One commentator said this about Paul referring to Timothy as the brother. Timothy, our brother. Think about that. Think about how we're into titles. You know, have you ever have you ever seen someone's title that like, you know, not ripping on this at all, but someone's title that works at Walmart? It needs like four name tags, you know, assistant to the regional secretary over executive decision making, purchasing, profiting. Like it's all of these different titles. Why? Because we're into titles. If I look at somebody and I say, you are a cashier. Like, whoop de doo But you're an associate. <gasps> what does that mean? Power prestige position, right? You're an associate. You're the assistant regional, wh- whatever, right? Think about this. One commentator said this. Timothy is described not as the preacher, the teacher, the theologian, or the administrator, but as the brother. Anyone who stands aloof from others can never be a real servant of Jesus Christ. Anyone who stands aloof from others can never be a real servant of Jesus Christ. Why? Because that's not how Jesus did it. That's not how Jesus did it. Was Jesus a leader? Yeah. Was Jesus a feet washer? Same thing. Same thing. Proverbs 18, 24 says, there are friends who destroy each other, but a real fan friend and a real friend sticks closer than what? A brother. Sticks closer than a brother. A real friend stands by you and closer than your family does. That's a true friend. Now, the reason I'm connecting friend and brotherhood is, is for this. We read in the Gospels as Jesus corrects the disciples' wrong ideology of position, and he says things like this in Matthew 20, verses 25 through 28. Jesus called them over and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those in high positions act as tyrants over them. It must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus said, you know how you see this being done in the world right now? Not your style, not your way, not how we do things. This is how you do things. If you want to be great, you become the servant. Whoever wants to be first becomes a slave. And Jesus said, here's the difference. Here's the difference for how his leadership model was going to work. He said, I'm going to set the standard. I'm going to set the standard of what it looks like to be a servant leader. And he says, because I didn't come to be served, I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. In the upper room discourse, in John chapter 15, this is, you know, however long it took Jesus to get two chapters away from chapter 13 where he actually does the feet washing, it's still the same scene. They're still in the upper room. John chapter 15, verses 12 through 17, he says this to his disciples, this is my command, love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants anymore because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I have called you friends because I've made known to you everything I've heard from my father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce fruit and that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he will give you. This is what I command you, love one another. You see, when we're identified by God, when we take on a Christ-like attitude and heart, we become brothers, we become sisters, we become friends that stick closer than family, and we start doing exactly what Jesus said at the end of that passage in John 15. We start obeying his command to love one another. Not when we're seeking for position, not when we're grasping for identity, but when we're resting in Christ, being who he made us to be, that's how we properly love one another. Do you ever struggle with loving people? come on, Black Friday was like two days ago. <laughs> Think about this. Like we struggle to love people. It's, it's a big deal. Do you want to know why you struggle? Do you want to know why I struggle? It's simple. We're trying to do it in our own strength. We're trying to find position or, or find identity in the midst of also loving people. It doesn't work. See, the only way you can properly love one another the way that Jesus told us to is to be who he's made you to be, to rest in your identity, which is him. And then you start laying your life down for your friends. Then it doesn't matter what happens to me. It matters that they know the Lord. It matters that they are getting the benefit. What happens is we start living lives that look like Jesus because we're in Christ, because we're resting in him. And then we actually start loving each other. We get it backwards. You know, we're like, love each other. No big deal. Just love each other. That's not easy. We know this. We have all failed miserably at it. And so Jesus says, you have to find your identity in me. He chose us. He loves us. Our natural response is not only to love him, but to love others. But if we aren't recognizing that, that he chose us, he chose every single one of you. He called every single one of you. When Jesus died on the cross, he reached out, he reconciled himself to all mankind. Second Corinthians five, it says God in Christ Jesus has reconciled himself to all mankind. So they have to do what? Yes. Yes. I accept that. I believe that you are called. You are chosen. If you rest in that, your love for others will flow naturally. Will it be easy? No, but it'll flow naturally. Because the hardness of that issue is not you straining to work it out. It's you continuing to submit yourself to God and trust him for the process. It'll come down to lack of faith, not lack of effort. It'll come down to lack of faith. And so do you trust the Lord to work that through you? Are we walking with the Lord in this this way? We are validated by who Jesus says we are. We are validated by who Jesus says we are. Not what the world thinks, not what even each other thinks. We are validated by Christ. Our identity has been established by him and is fulfilled when we abide in him. And in the same way, the Colossians, even though they were gen- many of them were from Gentile backgrounds, realized what this would be like to hear someone from Paul's position speaking to a dominating Gentile group of people, saying this to the saints in Christ at Colossae who are faithful brothers and sisters to the saints in the church. He doesn't identify people groups. He says, are you in the church? You're a saint. You know, I I tried to get my wife to refer to me as a saint. It doesn't really fly. But like, we are saints. We are saints in the eyes of God because of what Jesus has done. That's how complete it was. They're no longer heathens. Instead, they're saints in their family. And, And notice what he says this. In Christ, where? What does your Bible say? In Christ at Colossae, right? Why am I making a point of that? It's simple. You can go anywhere in this world. You can be any place and be in Christ. You can travel to the other side of the world. You can go to Africa. You can go to Europe. I mean, you can go to these far-off, nasty, gross places like downtown Spokane (laughs) and still be in Christ. Can you believe it? Wow, God is good. Guys, (laughs) the outward circumstances make little difference to Christians. The outward circumstances, <laughs> the, the outward circumstances, they don't they, they don't change who we are. We're in Christ wherever we go. And do you realize that that doesn't shift? You are in Christ at your family gatherings for the holidays. You know, we talked about this before Thanksgiving last week It's like I know Thanksgiving's hard. I know that getting together with family can be really hard. You know, there could be some carnality, there can be some contention. The turkey might be overcooked. I mean, like, I don't, there's, there can be some really difficult struggles, but here's the thing. You are in Christ in that location. Your peace and your joy are not dependent on where you are. Your peace, your joy are not dependent on where you are. They're dependent on whom you are in. And if you are in Christ, you can be at peace. You can have joy everywhere. We talked about our first study together at the beginning of November. We read that story from, you know, Acts chapter 6, Paul and Silas singing in the jail, right? Singing in the jail. Why? They're singing in the jail. They're they're stoked because their peace and their joy is not dependent on where they are locationally or what happened to them. They just got beat really bad and like with rods. It was terrible. So Paul is going to write about this more in chapter 3 of this letter, but Christians and the way that he lived his life, and the way that we can live our lives. This isn't beyond us. If we're in Christ and we're trusting in him, we're walking with him, we should be willing to do any job dil- diligently, cheerfully, and without complaint because we are in Christ and we do all things as unto him. He'll cover that really well in Colossians 3, 23 and 24. He'll say, everything that you do, do it for Jesus. Everything that you do, do it as unto the Lord. That's when someone's like, I just don't feel like it. Be like, If you're in Christ, you you don't have to even necessarily feel it. You'll do it with joy just because your hope, your joy, your peace, everything about you is not based on what you're currently doing. It's based on something higher that's untouchable. He continues that thought process. Look at verse 3. He says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. He says, you already heard about this hope and the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. It's bearing fruit and growing all over the world just as it has among you since the day you heard it and come to truly appreciate God's grace. Permit me a very brief rant. And those of you that know me, most of you do, know, know I do this from time to time. It's not all bad in Colossae, okay? I struggle with being pessimistic and 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 just kind of picking things seeing the negatives a lot of times I'll I'll see the negative and I'll get on that that train of thought and I'll just start kind of breaking the situation down in a very negative way this is an indictment against myself we have to remain positive positive as believers as believers we must remain positive it doesn't mean that we pretend like things around us are all great it doesn't mean like, oh, this sin is wonderful. What a lovely day. You know, It's don't be, we aren't stupid about what's going on. We're not flipping about sin or anything like that. But here's the thing. The things that are happening in the world around us should not affect our joy. We have things to be thankful for always. We have things going for us as believers that, again, circumstances around us can't touch. And a lot of times what we're going through is completely sapping our joy, our our. Happiness, our peace, our rest. Guys, we have to remain positive because our source of faith, hope, and love isn't based on situations, locations, or individuals. I'll say that again. Our source of faith, hope, and love are not based on situations, locations, or individuals. I tell you what, one quick way to find out if if that's if those things are are actually dictating your faith, your hope, and your love, just look and see how down you get when things around you aren't going well. Indictment against myself. This is absolutely something that, that I, again, I've, I've said this before, when I'm studying, I wish that the church could actually watch some of the study process because I just so many times will hang my head and put it on the desk and be like, oh, how am I going to share this? I'm such a hypocrite. And God's like, there's one way to fix that. Don't be one, right? Like do what the word says, you know. But you guys, we're all human. We all struggle with this. Even when we face heresy, like Paul's going to address in this letter, even when we face difficulty, challenges, affronts to who God is, attacks, he still recognizes, Paul does at the beginning, that this young church is doing some things right. They're doing some things well. And we need to see the good in things. We need to encourage each other with the positive. You know, I, my boss used to say, you know, two compliments to every one critique. And, and now, like, I don't know if that scale is being put together by professionals, but now they're like, it's five. Five compliments to every critique. And I'm over there going, five compliments. Nice shoes. Um, good hair. You know, I'm like trying to come up with like things for like, how do I critique if it's five compliments to one? But that's just because I have five negatives to every one compliment. That's my natural way. Most parents are like this. You know, we'll see, we'll see five negatives before we pay one. You guys, are we seeing the good? Are we expressing thankfulness and gratefulness and joy and all these things into people's lives? Because our, our kids, especially, our kids are looking at how we live. And this, this, This transcends, you know, decades of time. This doesn't necessarily apply to just people who have kids in the home. Our kids are watching what we're basing our joy, our rest, our peace, and our love like. They're watching how we're doing that, and they're going to follow. If I'm just a super hyper-negative person, it's very likely that my children are going to have that put into them. And so do I have a biblical view of the world around me? Do my kids actually see me basing my love my joy, my peace, my faith, my hope on situations in life rather than the one who has all of these things in his hand. The one who rules over all things. It's just a reminder. This should be encouraging. No one should feel beat down right now because Paul says we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. I hope that that encourages all of us coming off the Thanksgiving weekend. I hope that encourages us. We should always thank God every day. It's not a one-day thing. It's not just a one-time thing. It's not, I got my 2019 thanks in at Thanksgiving dinner, see you in 364, chumps. Like, it's not going to work like that. But a lot of people, I mean, they throw the thanks right out the window as soon as they get to Black Friday. It's very interesting to me that the greediest day of the year follows the most thankful day of the year. Thank you, Lord, for all we have. Now I'm splitting to get that Nintendo. You know, like... But but so often, it, the day of thankfulness is trumped by the day of, I don't have everything I want. Again, we have to address this as a group because we all struggle with it. Being thankful to God, honing in on this point Paul's making, we ought to thank God for each other too. Do you thank God regularly for the people he's put in your life? Do you thank the Lord for the people that you have around you, for your friends, for your family, for your church, for the people that God's allowed you to minister to? God's put so many wonderful people in my life. I'm so thankful for the people that God's put in my life. And you guys are a part of that. Uh, So many of us have worked side by side through so many different things. And I'm so thankful for you guys. And I'm sorry I don't say it more. I really am thankful for you guys. And I really do love and appreciate you. I hope you guys know that. And if I don't say it enough, remind me. Remind me as a brother. Come to me and be like, you really haven't expressed just your love for people very much lately. I got to correct that because it's there. I just got to express it. And, you know, I'm a guy. Sometimes I don't do that real well. All the gals are like, amen, hallelujah. (laughs) You guys, I really am thankful. And notice what Paul's thankful for. He says, for we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. These three things come up with Paul a lot. If you read his letters. Um, we the most natural passages, I think of the last verse of first Corinthians 13. These three abide faith, hope and love. But the greatest of these is good. Good job. You went through my Bible class. You had to get that one. But he, here's the thing, you guys. W- Paul talks about these a lot. You can look at a whole list of scriptures where he will reference faith, hope and love within a short section because he, he connects them to each other and we all want to have genuine faith. We all want to experience true love. We all want to be filled with hope. That's like good, good, good. That's like, you know, that's the full meal right there. It's like I want all of those things. Yes, please. I want to be I want to have faith in the Lord. I don't want to doubt. I want to know that I'm loved and have love for other people because that that's that that thing that fulfills the longing in my life. And then I want to have hope that's solid. I want to hope in something. I don't want to hope in, 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 a, in something that will let me down. I want to hope in something that will never fail me. That's pre-built into us as human beings as well. We all want to experience these things, but the source of all these is given by Paul in verses, um, the second half of verse 5 into the first, first part of verse 6. He says, you have already heard about this hope in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. You've already heard about this hope. Notice how he walks this backwards. If we go backwards, we kind of begin from the source and see what it, it begets. For we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, the love you have for the saints because of the hope reserved for you in heaven, right? Where did the hope come from? Well, he says it in the next verse. He says, you already heard about this hope in the word of truth, the gospel. The gospel is where your hope comes to life. And from that Love flows into you and your faith is built, but it comes from the gospel. The gospel is the source. It's the source of these things. We have to always be reminded, as especially as believers, you know, so many times we think about the gospel, we go to evangelism. You know, I need to share the gospel with somebody. You realize that as believers, we need to have the gospel shared with us all the time, just as often, if not more. Because we have to remember what the source of our hope and and our love and our faith is. And it's the gospel. Good news. We need to be reminded of this. Guys, never forget this. May we always remind each other, together as a family, of this. God is a friend and lover of the souls of men and women. God is a friend and a lover of our souls. God calls to sacrifice the most precious thing he had, and that was fellowship with the son. That was the sacrifice of Jesus. He loves us that much. The gospel sets us in a right relationship with God by situating us in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. You are situated in the finished work. Please hear the word finished, not partial, not in progress. Is he sanctifying you? Yeah. Yeah. Is he going to complete you on the day of Christ Jesus? Yes. But you, as a believer, are situated in the finished work of Jesus. Jesus is not finishing off any work regarding your salvation. That is done. As far as your maturity in him, we're just growing at the pace that we can handle. Right? You ever feel like sometimes he's asking too much? like I can't keep up dad you know like like that kid running through the store you know like that sometimes that's how I feel like with God it's like I can't keep up you're asking me mature so he's like you can handle it come on come on you can handle it you know he's getting us through these things but here's the thing Jesus is not working on any more of the salvation part his part was finished Hebrews 9 and 10 the work that was done on the cross is done it's completed it's finished And the gospel, that truth that we hear about Jesus, it's bearing fruit and growing all over the world. I don't believe that Paul was saying that just in his time. I believe that as a church, we see this happening always because the work of God is happening even in the most oppressive countries of the world. In fact, the fastest growing Christian population, last time I checked, was in Iran. The fastest growing Christian population. Why? persecution begets salvation begets conversion it's just a natural thing when the church is persecuted the true believers rise up and they start preaching they hit the ground they start preaching again do you know what happens when christians are too comfortable complacency we get quiet when we get too comfortable So it's time to get uncomfortable. I want everyone to dance together. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that. But like, it's good for us. You're like, oh man, I didn't bring my dancing shoes. Like, it's good for us to be uncomfortable. As much as we don't like it, comfort is a problem. It's a big problem for us. The gospel tells of grace. The gospel reminds us of the important things about our salvation that we ought never forget. It is not so much the message of what God demands as of what he offers. It tells not so much of his demand for us as of his gift for us. And that's what we need to always remember for ourselves and always share with others. No matter what's going on, God has given us this gift that no one can take away and that's more valuable than anything you could ever afford. And it's salvation in Christ. The good news of the gospel is that our debt has been paid. And Paul will go on in Colossians chapter 2, and verse 14, and he'll say this. He, speaking of Jesus, erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. What a visual. Uh, What a visual thing to present to people and to, to show us that this is something that Jesus finished as he died. That it was actually nailed through him. The gospel always reminds us and takes us back to the foot of the cross. It always takes us back to this place where we remember Jesus. And I can't really think of a better thing to do, beginning a letter that's going to correct false ideology of who God is, of who Jesus is, of um, how we should be living our lives out in front of him. I can't think of a better way than to start with communion by remembering Jesus. So excited this is going to be the first time as a church that we've been able to share communion together. But I think it's just a beautiful thing for us to, to do as a f- church family and to remember um, that what God was willing to do for us was not just costly but was necessary and not for him. It was not necessary for him. God didn't need me in some deep, powerful way. So he just had to get this thing done any way he could because what I had was important to him. Never cheapen the work on the cross and what Jesus did by thinking that you provide him something that he needs. Because it's much more rich, it's much more robust, and it's much more precious when you realize that we bring nothing to the table. That we bring nothing to the table of our salvation except our willingness to say yes that it was all him, and it was all because he loved you, and it was all because he wanted you to spend eternity with him. And so as we remember this this morning, you guys, I just want to encourage you that Jesus loves you that much. He loved you that much. God cares for you so much that despite our lack of bringing anything to the table, he still set the table. He still prepared And so as we take communion, this is our way of remembering his sacrifice. And Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians. You know these verses well. Chapter 11, verse 23. On the night when he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant, my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often, this is Paul speaking in verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You proclaim the gospel by taking communion until he returns, until the wedding, right? And so let's take communion together. What we're gonna do is they're gonna distribute it while the worship team, you guys can come on up. They're gonna lead us in a song and they're gonna hand out the elements and then hang on to them. We'll take them together as a church um but let's uh let's worship for a bit and they'll hand out the elements and we'll take communion together. Father, we just pray, Lord, that as we um come into this time that we do so, Lord, with great sobriety, uh Lord with a real honesty and openness. Um and so, Lord, we just ask that you would speak to us Lord as we worship that you would prepare our hearts and our minds if there's something, Lord, that's in the way that's preventing us from hearing you this morning, God, would you remove that? Would you deal with our sin, Lord? I pray that this time as we as we sing and we prepare to take of your body and your blood, Lord, that it would be a time of, of confession. Not because we have to fear telling you, Lord, that we've failed, that we've fallen short, but because we're safe there. Because it releases us, it frees us. And you will do that work of cleansing in us when we confess our sin to you. Your word says you're faithful and just to do it. And so, Lord, cleanse us of unrighteousness. God, I ask that you would minister to us in this time. Prepare our hearts to take communion in Jesus' name.